Princeton asks Van Til to teach yet again another year. Mm-hmm. Van Til consults with Machen. Machen says, you know, you're probably going to be frustrated at Princeton. And so Van Til uh, decides not to teach that second year, although he could have. And he, he goes out back to the Midwest mm-hmm. um, to uh, to pastor a church. And, and really, he thought he thought that's what he was going to do the rest of his mm-hmm. life. And Stonehouse says, well, would you be amenable to a call from from Doss, you know, Doss Machen, that was his nickname. And um, Van Til said, sure, I'll take a call. But what happened was uh, Machen was was told, if you really want this guy, you've got to go out and eyeball him. So he actually went out to mm-hmm. Van Til's church and it was a sort of Pharrell to Calvin, you know, mm-hmm. and said, we're not gonna, we're not gonna make it unless you're, you're part of the team. The thing that impressed me more than anything, getting to know him the way I did, uh, was his heart for evangelism and his heart for Christ. Welcome to The Afterword, a conversation on books, reading, and the church, a podcast from Westminster Bookstore. I'm your host, Johnny Gibson, and today I'm joined by Dr. Scott Oliphant, a professor of systematic theology and apologetics here at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, Scott's been teaching here for 33 years, and uh, I've asked him to come on the show today and uh, discuss Cornelius Van Til. So, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, most people have uh, maybe heard the name Cornelius Van Til or heard the ism, Van Tilianism, um, or uh, I'm a Van Tilian. Uh, so tell us who the man is behind this ism. Uh, who is Cornelius Van Til? Right. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, question that sometimes uh, people don't recognize in terms of its importance. He was, uh, he was born in Holland in uh, May of 1895. Uh, he, there were eight boys, um, one girl who passed away. So the, uh, eight boys were, uh, farmers with their dad and they <clears throat> all moved here 10 years later. As a matter of fact, Van Til had his 10th birthday on the boat, uh, coming from Holland to the United States. Uh, he told me a story one time of his, uh, his brother and he, uh, were meant to sell vegetables in Holland um, they'd grow vegetables on the farm and then they would travel around and trade these vegetables for others. And they were out there and the, and he said, uh, dad would give, he said, dad would give me and my brother each a nickel. If we could sell all the vegetables, then we could go into the saloon and have a beer. Well, that's what you did in Holland in those days. You know, uh-huh. the water wasn't necessarily as great and this was a real treat for the boys. So Van Til had those kinds of experiences that were vivid in his mind, uh, even before he got to the United States, he came to the United States and his family. Family moved eventually to the Midwest uh, to take up farming again, uh, became uh, involved with the uh, Christian Reformed Church, the Dutch community, uh, which you would expect at that point. Almost everyone then was still speaking Dutch uh, to one another, even in the churches. And uh, the, the friends of Van Til uh, would, would notice what a good farmer he was, particularly hmm. of all the boys. He loved doing it. Um, he had a, a, a garden, a vegetable garden at his home, I think, until the day he died. Every time I was there, it was it was mm. going and thriving, and he loved to tend the soil, and that's one of the things he just loved to do. And you can see that in some of the illustrations in his works. He talks mm. about chickens and cows and all kinds of things, and he has vivid memories of these things. But um, it was, a, it was a, a toss-up for him uh, for a while whether to remain in farming 
or to continue his schooling because he also had uh, teachers who would say uh, Van Til would ask very incisive questions and there was something there that was maybe a cut above uh, some of his peers. So he eventually uh, wound up at Calvin College, studied there, and um, that's where he uh, really soaked in Kuiper and Bob Inc. Uh, again, they weren't translated, but they didn't need to be. Uh, because he read Dutch then, and it took him a little while to get his English uh, straight, two or three years. But by the time he was in college, he was obviously proficient in English, but reading the Dutch and uh, was just uh, completely enthralled with Kuiper and Bovink and the things he was reading there. And he was so uh, academically astute that um, the encouragement was you need to do more study. Uh, and it was interesting, and I don't know all the reasons behind this, but he decided to go to Princeton Seminary. He decided to, to, to immerse himself in what, you know, was then American Presbyterianism. Uh, Princeton was uh, in, a, in a tough way at that point. We're talking about the, the early to mid-20s. Hmm. Uh, and Van Til is there. Um, as you know, Kuiper, Boving, Orfield all died within about a year and a half. So you've lost really hmm. um, the, uh, the bulwark of Reformed theology in those days. But Van Til goes and there's Machen. And uh, he's studying under William Brinton Green, Jr., studying apologetics at Princeton. He got his THM there, and uh, he wrote his uh, master's thesis. Uh, the title of it was Reformed Epistemology. That thesis eventually became one of his first uh, syllabuses, initially called Metaphysics of Apologetics and then Survey of Christian Epistemology. But he's dealing with epistemological issues. He also won an award for a paper that he wrote on, uh, on a Reformed view of free will. Uh, he it is the will and its theological implications, something like that. So he's interested in the contingency aspect um, that that reformed would deal with, but also in the epistemological matters that uh, he was wrestling with. He was then encouraged um, to pursue further study. So he went from the seminary, and this is important for people to recognize, hmm. to the university, huh. and he got his PhD at Princeton University writing his dissertation on philosophical idealism. He entitled his dissertation, God and the Absolute. Now, mm -hmm. if, if, you know, if you know sort of that structure, uh, uh, Machen's Christianity and liberalism is meant to say there are two religions here, not mm -hmm. one. That's what he was doing with God and the Absolute. Um, because there were Christians thinking that philosophical idealism, because it posited some sort of absolute, was probably a Christian philosophy that we could just adopt and uh, use uh, on our own. And Van Til was saying, no, 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 you need to understand this. I mean, his dissertation, he deals with pragmatism as well, but his dissertation is basically a philosophical confession of God's aseity hmm. and saying the absolute of philosophical idealism is dependent and relative because it needs the relative in order to define itself. God doesn't need anything in order to be who he is or to define himself. He mm -hmm. is who he is, period. And Van Til was making that point in a reformed way at Princeton University mm -hmm. in his dissertation. So it's a it's a defense of, of divine aseity in all mm -hmm. of its richness and robustness, but over against philosophical mm -hmm. idealism, which would say we've got an absolute. And Van Til would say, no, you don't, because unless there's a relative, that absolute can't be defined. Mm. Our God is not that way. The Christian God is not mm. that way. He is Asse. Now, so, what, what age was Van Til at this point doing his PhD? Yeah, I think, uh, I think I'm right that he finished his PhD in 27. He was born in 1895, so he, he would have been in his early 30s. Okay. Um, 
as you probably know, Machen asks him to teach. Machen taught apologetics for a year at Princeton, and then Van Til was made known to him. They were they were friends. Machen was his teacher in that way, so they weren't just peers. Hmm. Uh, Van Til looked up to Machen, but Machen asked Van Til to teach uh, a year at, in apologetics at Princeton, which Van Til did. And it was during that year that Machen, everything for Machen fell apart because of the hmm. of the. Um, a turn at Princeton from old Princeton to new Princeton. Machen is out during that year. Princeton asks Van Til to teach yet again another year. Mm-hmm. Van Til consults with Machen. Machen says, you know, you're probably going to be frustrated at Princeton. And so Van Til uh, decides not to teach that second year, although he could have. And he, he goes out back to the Midwest mm-hmm. um, to uh, to pastor a church. And, and really he thought, he thought that's what he was going to do the rest of his mm. life. He he was uh, he sat under the ministry of R. B. Kuyper uh, while he was in the Midwest in his church while he was at Calvin. So Kuyper, R. B. Kuyper, and Van Til became colleagues later. But it was under his ministry and also mm. Herman Hooksema, whom uh, Van Til was later going to be critical of in terms of uh, Hooksema's view of common grace. But he still appreciated the man very much. So he sat under Hooksema and Kuyper, and and through that he became. Uh, enamored with the preaching of the word and, and was himself, uh, you know, a, a passionate preacher. You know, he could pound the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Now, were these churches that he, was, that he sat under their preaching uh, CRC churches? Yeah, CRC churches. So at this point, he's not in the OPC. No, there is no OPC yet. Course, so he's, right. he's at Calvin, yeah. um, and, and he's sitting under all of this preaching. And, mm-hmm. and as you know, the OPC sort of happens in the 30s, 36-ish, yes. yeah, Presbyterian right. Church in America. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, during that time, then Van Til does make the transition. But, but when he's in this church, uh, Machen has decided that he needs to start a seminary that's going to be in the tradition of Old Princeton. Mm-hmm. Old Princeton has died in Machen's view, and and I think he was correct on that in terms of orthodoxy. So uh, he's got to get the right faculty together. Mm-hmm. Um, so O.T. Alice is is in, um, and Stonehouse is in, and Machen is insistent that uh, that Van Til needs to come, and that's an important piece historically. Historians differ a little bit on this who, who talk about these things. It's clear to me that Machen knew that Van Til's acumen was above Machen's in that particular area. Mm-hmm. Van Til couldn't have done what Machen did in New Testament, but but Machen saw in Van Til something that mm-hmm. he knew he needed. And so he he really put a lot of pressure on Van Til. First, Alice said to Van Til, Machen wants you. We need you here. This place won't make it. We can't start unless you come. Van Til said, I'm not coming. And at this point, is he in pastoral ministry? He's in, in pastoral Midwest? ministry, yeah, mm-hmm. in, uh, in Indiana. And, and he says, I'm not going to come. And he says, my, my answer is irrevocable. So, <laughs> so Stonehouse contacts him. You know, Mason's thinking, okay, Alice couldn't do it. How about Dutch on Dutch? <laughs> so, so Stonehouse contacts him. Van Til says, I've, I've already given my answer. And Stonehouse says, well, would you be amenable to a call from from Doss? You know, Doss Machen, that was his nickname. And um, Van Til said, sure, I'll take a call. But what happened was uh, Machen was was told, if you really want this guy, you've got to go out and eyeball him. So he actually went out to mm-hmm. Van Til's church, and it was a sort of Pharrell to Calvin, you know, mm-hmm. and said, we're not gonna. We're not gonna make it unless you're you're part of the team. And mm-hmm. Ventil did this reluctantly. I think it's important to see. I mean, it turned out to be magnificent for the church in so many ways. But he just it just was not what he was mm-hmm. wanting. 
But after Machen, you know, Machen was his hero. After Machen sort of eyeballed him and said, you've got to do this, Van Til agreed to come. And so Westminster started with, with Van Til and, and uh, Alice and Stonehouse and Machen. How, and how long was Van Til a pastor for? Was it a year It was or less than a year. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, I, I've always felt sorry for this church because yeah. I've got this guy and I'm sure he was wonderful. Mm. And I'm sure he was, you know, so um, apologetic in, in what had happened, but he... He saw the the will of God mm. in what Machen was telling mm. him. He just thought, "This is what I've committed my life to is the the consistency of Reformed theology and Reformed orthodoxy." And if Machen thinks this is the way we have to go, mm-hmm. then I yeah. think this is the way we have to go. Have I heard somewhere correctly that uh, Van Til says something like, "I I just want to protect the sheep from the wolves." Yeah, yeah. And is that why he? That's why he left pastoral ministry to come and. Yeah, work at Westminster. That's exactly right. He saw with Machen that Princeton was gone, and Princeton had been the bulwark. And and if Princeton's gone, who and what? Mm-hmm. And they, you know they had a fledgling little group. It was just it was not a it was not a huge uh, influx of students. I can't remember the student body, but it was less than twenty, as I remember, mm-hmm. um, beginning. And yet they were they were going to hold the line, and they were going to teach, and they they had the you know they had some of the best professors that they could have gotten some historians have said you know machen's design was really to stick it into princeton's stick it in princeton's eye and say see we got your faculty and that's why he wanted van til but it's much deeper than that he's mm-hmm. not just not a pragmatic hey i'm going to get back at you it's how do i get the best people mm-hmm. to get this seminary going and mm-hmm. and that's what he did um alice uh you know didn't stay for that long because when the when the divisions happened, there was a there was a blow up in the mid nineteen thirties because of Machen's establishing an independent foreign missions board, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I'm right. Thirteen out of the twenty plus board members resigned because of that. They felt like Machen was a bit of a renegade at that point, and that's when O. T. Alice left too. He resigned. Mm-hmm. He was not happy. Uh, he said something about Machen being uh, a brilliant scholar but a poor poor tactician, mm-hmm. um, but. But Alice and Van Til remained friends so much so that um, Van Til preached uh, Alice's sermon when he died in the mm. in the early seventies. So they were still they were still friends. Mm. Alice didn't didn't pursue an academic career after that. Didn't didn't have mm-hmm. to uh, financially. So they remained friends. Van Til stayed on at, at at Westminster, obviously, and even says in some places where he's kind of happy for the way things have fallen out because he feels like it's going to make it's going to make them more committed to the Orthodox Reformed theology that Westminster was supposed to propagate. So so he stays, and um, as, as we all know, um, Machen uh, dies an untimely death, uh, January, uh, I think January 1st of 37, and, Mach- and Van Til then becomes sort of the default uh, mm-hmm. leader of Westminster. Mm-hmm. So another thing he wouldn't have taken on himself, but it just yeah. kind of happened that way. So he comes in 1929, yep. and when did he retire? He retired officially in 72, but he hung on and kept teaching a bit. Yeah. Uh, I think even into the latter 70s, he would teach a course or two here mm-hmm. and there. I came here as a student in 1981. He was still coming in to do a lecture every now and then. Yeah. Um, not as capable just because of his age as he was in the early days, but still well worth listening to. Yeah. Uh, in what he, he came in to do a, you know, a talk on the problem of evil uh, yeah. in, in class one time. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the student questions would come. Uh, question, uh, Dr. Van Til, uh, where did evil come from? And Van Til, Genesis 3. You know, it was, I'm yeah. not going to get speculative. It, it happened in Genesis 3. Yeah. And here's what we need. And then he, off he'd go on redemptive history. 
so mm. it, you know his his mind um you know would would falter a little bit in his in his later years but not in terms of the biblical content hmm. because he says you know as he writes in a dutch family they were reading the bible every single day and hmm. it was just a part of the air that he breathed yeah. and and he, and and part of the difficulty of understanding van till is he thinks all of us are as biblically literate as he was yeah. and not everybody is so mm-hmm. so you pick it up you almost have to read between the lines to get the biblical mm-hmm. content he he knows it's there Mm-hmm. But his readers don't always know it's there. So that's yeah. been part of the difficulty. Yeah. And talk a little bit about his relationship with Gohardus Voss, because Fantil, I think, <clears throat> says that he really gets his redemptive historical approach from Voss. What, what was the relationship there? Yeah, it was a very close, very tight relationship. Uh, they became close at Princeton. Um, Voss uh, was asked to come to Westminster, but it's 1929. Um, Voss is about three to four years from retirement, so he he decides not to come. But again, there wasn't um, you know there there wasn't animosity between Van Til or, or Machen and Voss. And and when Voss died in the in the late forties, Van Til preached at his funeral mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so the relationship was very strong. And and you know if I could if I could put it this way, you don't understand Van Til properly until you see Voss behind what he's doing. It's not always explicit. Most of the time, it's not explicit. Mm-hmm. But it would be the reason that you would be a Vantillian and not a Theonomist is mm-hmm. because you get Voss. You understand what Voss is doing. And that lays out um, the flow of redemptive history in a way that that you're you're not able to be, I don't think either in, in the current trend, you're not able to be post-millennial mm-hmm. or or theonomic, uh, not to say you can't be that and Vantillian, but you're not getting the Vossian emphasis of mm-hmm. Vantill, particularly when he talks about philosophy of history and those kinds of mm-hmm. things and the way it's laid out. He just does a, a fantastic job in some of that and in all of that, I think. And and that's one of the reasons why he is that way is because Voss mm-hmm. has such an influence on mm-hmm. him. Uh, what are some of the stories students would tell having learned under Van Til? What was he like as a lecturer? Was he interesting or was he quite sort of bland? <laughs> well, you know, we had a we had a chat with Dr. Gaffin not too long ago, and um, Gaffin was reflecting on his time at Westminster, and and he said, you know, it was it was quite a uh, an uh, uh, an affair going from uh, Murray's class to Van Til's class because he said you walk into Murray and it's very precise. And it's, uh, you know, in some ways, in a good sense, sort of pedantic. And you're you're into the text of Scripture, and you're you're just taking things apart. And he said, um, then you go into Van Til's class. And he said, he walks in, and he picks up the chalk, and he's all over the world. Um, and he's writing he's writing worldview things. And, he's, and he said, Gaffin said, you know, my own <laughs> disposition is more like Murray's. Uh-huh. But he said that what, what you would get from uh, from Van Til is the is the big scope of Christianity and how this applies to some of these big ideas that are floating around out there. Uh, Gaffin said he was he was counseled to go to Westminster by a pastor, and the pastor said, you know, you need to go get your epistemology straight. So you need to learn from Van Til hmm. and. And Gaffin said that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. So even though he was, you know, he was dynamic and sort of all over the map in some ways philosophically, that was one way that students would begin to catch that this this really is important. Christianity really is the only answer. All these philosophical views mm-hmm. are going to provide the answer. So one of the famous stories, which is which is a true story, uh, it's in print. Ventil told it to me is when um, you know there was a student in there, um, sort of. You know, not paying attention, and Van Til tosses a little chalk at him. You know, 
fires it at him. And uh, it, it hit him in such a way that it drew a little blood on his head, Van Til said. So he said the, guy, the student comes into class the next time with a helmet on, <laughs> protecting himself. And Van Til just thought that was, that was great fun. And so he was a, he was a dynamic lecturer. He was, he was very humorous, even uh, during the time that I knew him. He just, you know, he had these little quips and things that he would mm-hmm. throw out. So he was, a, he was a fun and entertaining man in so mm-hmm. many ways. I would have loved to have sat in his class. Never had the opportunity to learn under him in a classroom. So how did you come across Van Til? How did you first have contact with him? Yeah, well, I was um, I was a relatively new Christian, and um, I was going to uh, university in Texas near my hometown, and um, I, I took a course, a philosophy course, from a man who was a Christian uh, philosopher. And it's the first time I'd ha- had any contact with any Christian who was very thoughtful. I mean, very thoughtful. I had a lot of thoughtful Christians, but he was, you know, into this area that I had never explored. And um, one of the first classes he offered at this university was a class on Francis Schaeffer. Now, he could do that at a university because he entitled his course Issues in Philosophy. And he said the reason he did that is so he could teach anything he wanted to. So we, we, we had a course on Schaeffer. I hadn't I hadn't heard of Schaefer, didn't know much about him. Schaefer's film series was coming out. His books were becoming popular. Mm-hmm. The kind of triumvirate, you know, God who is there, escape from reason, and he is there and he is not silent. Those were kind of the three biggies that Schaefer published. And they, they were making the rounds among uh, friends of mine pretty quickly. And Schaefer was using words that none of us had ever heard before, like epistemology and and talking about things in in the history of the church that we weren't familiar with, um, even his his uh, his his material on reason and how to think about reason and what the history of the church had done with that uh, mm-hmm. was was all brand new material to to me and my friends. Well, this uh, this course on Schaefer was just uh, eye opening to me, and and right about that time, a uh, little bit after Christianity Today. Uh, magazine did an interview with Van Til, and it arrives in my mailbox. The magazine arrives, and there's a picture of Van Til in the front. Magazine I still have in my study um, from 1977, and it it's uh, you know the the um, subtitle is the legacy of a down to earth scholar. And so I opened it. I was very interested since I'd been reading Schaefer, and it said uh, in the in the little blurb about Van Til, it said Dr. Van Til has taught such theological luminaries as E.J. Carnell, Francis Schaefer. Etc. So I read the interview and I thought, you know, now that I've read Schaefer, I should probably read one of Schaefer's teachers. Mm-hmm. So I went down to the local bookstore. We had bookstores back then. And, um, and, and I said, here's the book. Here's what I need. It was listed in the interview. And um, he'd never heard of the author. He opens his big books in print. Uh, he'd never heard of the publisher, Presbyterian <laughs> Informed. He said, this will take a month to get here. I said, okay. So there's no Amazon back there. You just wait. What was the book? Defense of the Faith. Defense of Faith. Yeah. So I ordered that book and uh, and began to to trek through it. And it was difficult in in so many ways. And it was eye opening in so many ways. I knew I was in the midst of things I I hadn't heard before, learned before, but I also knew I was in the midst of things I needed to know. So I would write down questions and I would I would skip class at the university and grab my Christian philosophy professor and we'd go have coffee and I'd say, can you help me with this? Can you help me Mm -hmm. with that? Sometimes he'd say, yeah, I think this is what's going on. Then sometimes he'd say, I have no idea what's happening there. And had he read the the book? He hadn't read, no. Had he heard of Van Til? He'd heard of Van Til, yeah, but he hadn't read any of his material. He was an evangelical and he knew Van Til was reformed and kind of initially, you know, not as um, happy with his theology, but he was a, a dear man and was happy to try to help. But he couldn't get to the bottom of some of this 
So there was a there was a, a an address on the back of the book, uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, P.O. Box two seven zero zero nine, Philadelphia one nine one one eight. So I thought, all right, I'll just I'll just write and see what happens. So I wrote the seminary and I said, I'm out here, middle of the Texas Panhandle. I don't have a library. I don't have people that can help me. I'm working through this book. Would there be anybody I could I could get some help from? You know, if I have a question or something. And they wrote back and said, um, Dr. Van Til says, uh, write to him. He's, he's retired. Um, he's got nothing to teach anymore. So here's his avenue, 16 Rich um, Avenue. So I wrote him. Um, and, you know, I don't remember. I didn't save all that I wrote him, but I saved most of what he wrote back. And we started this correspondence. Um, but I, you know, I didn't know what he meant by every fact, uh, you know, speaks about God. And I remember writing to him about, I've got a coffee cup on my, on my desk. How does that speak about God? That's a fact, mm. you know, and he would, he would just, he, he would write in a, a lot of times a spiral notebook and just write, you know, longhand, mm-hmm. tear it out, fold it up, send it. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew if I, if I mailed a, a letter on, on a Monday, I knew the next Monday his, his responses wow. would, would arrive like, and they did just hmm. like clockwork. And, and at the end of every response, he would say, please write again, please write again. Hmm. So he, he loved to do that sort of thing. Hmm. And, um, and so we, we corresponded a bit here and there and I kept reading and then rereading. And eventually a friend of mine and I, um, thought, well, you know, I wonder if he would come. So I, I wrote him and I said, would you have any interest in coming to a place like Amarillo, Texas? And, he said, uh, absolutely, let's let's set a date. And so he came down and stayed in our home for uh, four or five days. And he said, the, the one condition is you're going to have to take a walk with me every day because I'm a walker. So that won't be a problem. He's in his 80s. He could walk. I mean, he would move. And uh, he would huff and puff. You know, it was hard for him. He would just It was real mm-hmm. exercise for him. But I was just peppering him with questions when we would mm-hmm. take this walk around the park near my uh, home. And I wish I'd had, you know, my an iPhone or something where I could record all of this. I was just asking him questions, just things that I was mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, thinking about historically and otherwise. He would, he would almost always bring Machen into the discussion. It was, it was very mm-hmm. clear that Machen, that relationship was as real to him when he was in his eighties as it was when he was huh. in his thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, he appreciated Machen so much and thought that what Machen had done was uh, in, in the best spiritual sense, heroic. Mm. Um, that he had really uh, saved uh, the church in so many ways and a generation of mm. students. And, and you know, humanly speaking, of course, uh, in God's providence, was mm. able to protect Reformed orthodoxy. And he just couldn't say enough about Machen. He told me, I think I've got this number right. He said, you know, I saw Machen in the early days write a check to Westminster for $23,000. There was no tuition charged. Mm-hmm. So how is Westminster going to make it when it begins at the point of, of mm-hmm. the depression in the United States? Well, it's going to make it partly through Machen's gifts. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, Machen would, would give sacrificially to make sure that the seminary continued. Mm-hmm. So it was a devastating thing when he when he died mm-hmm. um, in, in 37. Uh, the seminary, by God's grace, was able to continue, but mm-hmm. Machen was supposed to be the guy to lead the seminary mm-hmm. into the 20th mm-hmm. century, and it, the Lord had other yeah. plans. What age did Van Til die at? Van Til died in 1987, so mm-hmm. he would have been, I think, 92. And were you here in Philadelphia at that point? No, I had I had moved back um, to Texas. I, I left here in 84. Um, did we correspond? Well, actually um, – the correspondence that I remember, I wrote my THM thesis on a comparison of, of Van Til and Doiveard in their transcendental approaches. 
And, um, you know, I was riding away and, and I tried when I was a student here to take Van Til out to dinner as much as possible. So we'd go out to dinner, you know, once a month, uh, twice a month, something like that. And um, I would just kind of keep him up on what I was doing in my mm. thesis. And he, you know, he would be interested in it. Uh, but then uh, after being back for about a year in Texas, uh, I got a note for him uh, commending my thesis. He was happy for mm-hmm. what it said and happy for what I'd done. And that, that was kind of a highlight in my own life. Um, and then I heard that he had um, that he had lung cancer. And uh, one of the men that I that I knew who used to be dean of students here, a very dear gentleman, uh, his name was Roy Oliver. Roy was asked by Van Til to read scripture to Van Til while he was laying on his deathbed. Mm. And Roy told me that um, almost all that Van Til wanted read to him was the book of Revelation. He just wanted to see the plan of God unfolding, you know, before wow. he went to glory. Hmm. And that's what Roy uh, read to him. And, and he died, I think, in April 1987. <clears throat> and then I, um, I got a call from the seminary, which is another highlight, uh, humbling uh, to me. They were going to do a memorial service for Van Til at Westminster. Dick Gaffin was going to preach. And they asked me and three or four others if we'd come say a few words about mm-hmm. about Van Til. And mm-hmm. I, I felt completely unworthy, but of course I was going to do it. It was such a privilege. So I came, and uh, Bob Gahan, who edited Jerusalem and Athens uh, there, John Frame was here, Grady Spires, there were some other mm-hmm. uh, people like that. And, and it, was a, it was a tribute to Van Til's uh, legacy. Mm. Um, so just to bring this episode to a close, uh, how would you sum up Van Til in a few sentences? What, what, what was he about? Yeah, the thing that impressed me more than anything, getting to know him the way I did, uh, was his heart for evangelism and his heart for Christ. Um, when I would when I would walk uh, with him, so when I told him I was going to come to Westminster after we'd been together in Texas, he said, well, when you need to get housing, you need to find housing for you and your family, come stay with me, use my car, you can get around uh, with my car and just stay in my home. So I stayed with him, I believe it was around a couple of weeks, and uh, we would walk every day, and um, and he would introduce me to his neighbors, and and more than one, I don't remember one not saying this, possible, but more than one would say, I know what he's doing, he's talking to you about Jesus, isn't he? So they knew, he was known as the elderly gentleman who would walk around the neighborhood and talk to people about Jesus. There was a convent around the corner uh, from his home, and the story is he would he would stop the nuns and talk to them about Jesus and talk to them about the gospel. So yeah. for all of his complexity, for all that he was trying to do apologetically, and he says this in places, he doesn't, he doesn't separate apologetics from evangelism. What he's trying to do is help people understand the sufficiency of Christ and the exclusivity of Christianity and, and help people to understand that it's our responsibility to cling to Christ. And that, that's what he did with his neighbors. Mm. Mm. He's that kind of man. Yeah. Uh, such a deep thinker mm-hmm. uh, uh, and someone who stretches your mind when you read his books. And yet, at the end of the day, just wanted to share the gospel with share people. Share the gospel. Exactly and, uh, right. It's a beautiful thing to it see never in left someone's him. life. Yeah. Now, you yourself uh, have the same kind of desire and emphasis. And uh, you've written a book called The Faithful Apologist, Rethinking the Role of Persuasion right. in Apologetics, published by uh, Zondervan. Uh, endorsed here by uh, our Kent Hughes, our colleague right. from a few yeah. years ago, and Sinclair Ferguson, and uh, also our colleague, now retired, uh, William Edgar, mm-hmm. Bill Edgar. Uh, tell us what you're trying to do in uh, this book, The Faithful Apologist. Well, 
what I've tried to do, this is kind of a follow-up. The first book I published with Sonderman was called Know Why You Believe, and it was meant to be um, an accessible apologetic. They kind of set the table of contents. We want you to address these issues, problem of evil, what about scripture, what about science, those kinds of things, which I was happy to do. Um, and having done that then, that's kind of foundational. I told them what I'd like to do is follow up a bit and and try to show how the discipline of apologetics needs to be informed by biblical truth from beginning to end. So, so I start, um, you know, with with God Himself as uh, defending because He's the divine warrior, mm-hmm. um, and then using the likes of us in His church and in His kingdom to propagate that defense. Uh, and the re- one of the reasons I want to uh, emphasize persuasion is to try to help people understand one of the most important truths, I think, in Ventil's apologetic, coming from Calvin, who got it from Paul, and that is that every person actually knows God. So if mm-hmm. a person is someone, by virtue of being the image of God, who knows God, there's going to be a point of connection between us and that person. Uh, because whenever we communicate the truth, God has already been there communicating that truth to them. So we're able then to connect. It's not just um, a barrier that's mm. in- insurmountable, but God has actually built the highway from us to them because in their heart of hearts, they know who God is. They know they owe allegiance to him. So we have a way then to try to draw them in as we communicate the truth. And so I was trying to use as much as I could biblical truth to help people see that apologetics doesn't have to be this kind of mysterious, only academic uh, discipline out there, but it's actually something that all of us are supposed to do from 1 Peter 3.15 and can do because God has given us the resources. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you. I think it's a really helpful book. I'd encourage people to pick it up, The Faithful Apologist by Scott Oliphant, published by Zondervan. And uh, we're doing a giveaway as part of this episode. So if you go to wtsbooks.com, com forward slash afterward uh, you can enter for the giveaway we call it a freebie in the uk but it's a giveaway <laughs> here in the states but you got to go on uh, wtsbooks.com forward slash afterward and uh, you can enter to get a free copy of the faithful apologist i think there are a number of copies being given away uh, so do make uh, uh, give yourself a chance of getting it Uh, Scott, we're going to continue talking about Van Til, but in a next episode. So if you want to join us for that, having heard about who Van Til was, the man behind Van Tilianism, uh, then join us again for the second episode when we're going to dive into his books and some of his writings. And uh, I'm going to ask Scott about uh, the deep structure of Van Til's thought. So I hope you can join us for that.